Good morning. It's good to see you uh, again this morning, and I'm Daniel, uh, and it's great to, to be back together again. And if you don't know, we're in a series as a church the past few months in the New Testament letter of Ephesians. We've been working our way through this New Testament letter, and we've said over and over, if you've been here, that the author Paul grounds and roots the, the church in Ephesus in their new identity, thus grounding and rooting us in our new identity as a church in who God is to us and what God has done for us. And in chapters four through six of Ephesians, Paul is calling the church, calling us to walk out this new identity, to live it out. Two weeks ago, Timothy preached a great sermon on God's call to be a holy and righteous people, uh, to not allow secret sins to, to destroy us, to, br- to bring our deeds of darkness into the light and to be a messy, broken people as the church, allowing others to enter into our struggles and then allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us and compel us to fight for holiness and righteousness. Now, it's not the only area but a big area of secrecy and darkness in most of our lives is our sexuality. That's why Paul highlights it in Ephesians chapter five, verses three to five. Ephesus was a highly sexualized culture, and I doubt any of you would disagree that we live in a highly sexually charged climate. In 1968, Graham Nash wrote a song, We Can Change the World. And the first line of the chorus is, we can change the world, we can rearrange the world. I'm not sure if Graham Nash knew how quickly America would begin to buy into creating a whole new world. In 1969, there was a little musical festival that maybe some of you have heard of called Woodstock. Woodstock was about peace. It was countercultural. It was a sexual revolution. It was the creation of a new and different world. And the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s was truly that it was a revolution. It has transformed our culture's view of sex with incredible speed and power. And since the sexual revolution, more and more people in Western society are saying this, to be fully human, to be fulfilled, to enjoy true relational depth and intimacy, then we ought to have maximum freedom to do and to be whatever we wish. Let me say that again, to be fully human and to be fulfilled and to enjoy true relational depth and intimacy, we ought to have maximum freedom, individual freedom, to do and be whatever we wish. One Harvard student put it like this, the freedom of our day is the freedom to devote ourselves to any values we please. Our culture is defined by the mottos of some of our leading companies. Apple, think differently. Outback Steakhouse, no rules, just right. (laughs) PlayStation, be whatever you want to be. Burger King, have it your way. Nike, just do it. These sayings are true for our culture's view of sex. Today, our view is sexually, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do because in that freedom, I am the most fulfilled. And the reality is that many Christians, many of us, think no different. That God wants me to be fulfilled. And fulfillment is found in my freedom. And in my freedom, I can have sex and be as sexual as I choose. And out of this thinking flows all kinds of rationalizations which break biblical sexual boundaries. Things like divorce and adultery and cohabitation and promiscuity of all kinds that many of us 
are guilty of. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 is the hinge verse for the passage that we looked at two weeks ago and it's the, pa- and the passage that we're going to look at over the next two weeks. And here is Ephesians 5, 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting. <laughs> this word rubs against our current culture's value of individual freedom. Right? The very nature of submission is a humility that looks at others and says, how can I serve you? And our culture says, how can I serve myself? Now hear me, submission does not rub against human fulfillment. On the contrary, the Bible teaches us that life and submission to God and his ways is the most fulfilled life. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to slow down and I'm going to spend the next two weeks in this passage. This week I want to address love. And I will talk some about marriage this week. But next week, I really want to dive into marriage, the role of husband and wife, as Paul lays out in our passage that we're going to look at. So that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read our passage this morning. It's going to be the, this morning and next week, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. This is God's word to us this morning. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I ask that you would come and speak to us. Your word is living and active, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and we need you to penetrate. Penetrate into our thinking, to penetrate into our hearts, to change us, Lord God, to rearrange us this morning. Help us to see your great love, Lord Jesus, to us, your people. Remove me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So I was a campus minister at UNC Chapel Hill for five years, uh, and at UNC, some of you are still there. There was a very popular class that many seniors took in their spring semester, and it was a class on love. It was a whole class on love, one whole semester on love. And here I am trying to discuss love in 30 minutes. So there's no way that I can discuss every aspect of love. So just a disclaimer. But the passage that I just read in Ephesians chapter 5, it is the longest passage in the New Testament on marriage. And I want us to use it to discuss love this morning. For 10 verses, Paul describes this divinely ordained institution of marriage. And then he says something in verse 32. He says, this mystery, this marriage, 
is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, the word mystery, maybe that caught your attention if you've been with us here as we've looked at Ephesians. It is the word that we've said, I've said over and over, is the key to unlocking and understanding the whole book of Ephesians, that God has a secret God has a mystery that he is letting out to the world and it's that he is reuniting the whole world under one head, Jesus Christ. A diverse people under one head, the Lord Jesus. And we have said that the most conspicuous place where he does this is the church. The people of God as they gather together. Well, another place that we're seeing this morning that God lets out his secret or he puts on display this gospel is marriage. Love between a man and a woman is the pointer to the love story of Christ and the church. So listen, marriage is about more than marriage. Even if you don't plan on getting married soon, if you're here this morning, or you never wanna get married, marriage is a part of human life, and it has something to teach every single one of us. But let me wave my hands here for a second. To those of you who, who are single and you're already drifting off into a, a daydream here, let me say a few things to those of you who are single this morning. Marriage and singleness are penultimate. They are below what is ultimate. What is ultimate is the love story of Christ and the church. This is the mystery that is being revealed. So contrary to some churches and some churches that I've been in, the two greatest commandments in the Bible are not get married and have sex. That's not the two greatest commandments. The two greatest commandments in the Bible are love God and love neighbor. Therefore, you are not less than if you're single, and you're not greater than if you're married. Paul has a high view of being single. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Paul was single, Jesus was single both able to give themselves fully to the work of God's kingdom. Paul also has a high view of marriage, as seen in our passage. Singles and marrieds both teach the other aspects about Christ and the church. Both put on display to the other and to the world the love story we call the gospel. Singles need married people, and married people need single people in order to understand more fully the gospel. Therefore, you are not defined by your singleness, and you're not defined by your marriage. A few years ago, uh, before I married Rachel, uh, I was invited to come and preach at a church in, in Raleigh, just down the street. I was 32, year old, 32 years old at the time and single, and one of the elders got up to introduce me before I preached, and he said, our preacher this morning is Reverend Daniel Mason, He's from Columbus, Georgia. He went to Auburn University, graduated in 2000, felt the call to ministry while in college. And, and if you didn't know, Daniel's single. <laughs> Big old goofy grin on his face. I just wanted to jump up. I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. But I kind of wanted to do that. As if to say, church, let's help this poor minister find a wife. <laughs> Daniel, come and preach. <laughs> I was like, what a great, horrible, what a horrible way to set me up as I came to preach God's word that morning. The major identifier for this man, according to, to, for me, according to this man, was I was single. 
My prayer is that for those of you who are single in this community would feel incredible value. You are needed. You teach all of us what it means to know Christ in a way that many marrieds won't know. Now I can remember another time when I was being assessed by our denomination as a church planter. This was again before I I met Rachel, before we got married. I think I was around 32. 32 was a great year in my life. Uh, (laughs) The first question they asked me, uh, it was the first night of assessment. We would preach a a small like homily and then they would ask us questions. And the first question, Daniel, do you have the gift? Do you have the gift? the gift, the way they sounded, it sounded like a fatal disease. I mean, I was like, and what they're referring to was Paul talking about the gift of singleness, right? First Corinthians, do you have the gift? <laughs> Man, the way the Southern church has exalted marriage as ultimate sure can make being single feel like a disease <laughs> rather than a gift. Singleness is a gift and it is needed within the church to teach others about this mystery of Christ and the church. And marriage is a gift, and it's used to declare and to put on display this mystery of the incredible love story of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, 31, passage this morning, Paul quotes Genesis chapter two, verse 24, and says, therefore a man shall love, leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I could say a lot about just this one verse, but I want to make one point this morning about love and show that it should have at least two effects on us. This is what I want to show show us this morning. Love is commitment. Therefore, love is giving more than it is receiving, and love is action more than it is feeling. Ephesians 5 and Genesis 2, a man shall hold fast or a man shall cleave. That is, in the original language, is referring to entering into covenant. A man shall covenant with his wife. Covenant was a binding legal agreement. Again, our society, society today does not like that language. We're a society that wants individual freedom. We don't like authority. We don't like law. We want choice. We have, as Nash sang, rearranged our world. In the Old Testament, when there was a covenant, God would introduce himself and the other party would be introduced, and then there were certain duties and obligations that each would commit to. And there were blessings that they were followed, curses of disobedience, and then there were vows, a public ratifying of the covenant. Covenant was a binding and legal love agreement. Today, we talk about love very, very differently. We can hear or we can say things like, I don't need to get married to show I love you. I knew I was in love when I stayed up all night just talking and laughing. I knew we were in love with that first kiss. It was magic. I don't know if I love them until I have sex with them or until I live with them. We talk about love in the exact opposite way that the Bible does. Again, we have rearranged our world. We talk about love in regards to what's going on in the inside of us. My feelings, my freedom, my choice. But the Bible talks about love not in terms of the inside, but on the outside. Not in terms of you, but the other. When I officiate weddings and a couple is about to say their vows, they do not vow because they feel so excited. I don't get them to say, I'm feeling so excited right now 
I'm overwhelmed by your beauty right now. I'm so thankful for you right now. Therefore, I will marry you. No. They vow, I vowed, I take you to have and to hold from this day forward for richer or for poorer. I commit to you whatever may come. The vows are a promise about the future, not about how you feel in the moment, because covenant love is commitment. Love is absent without commitment. If you think love is about you and your inside only, then you're buying into the way that our culture has changed and rearranged it. The Bible talks about love as commitment. Therefore, love is more about giving than it is about receiving. Look at our passage again. Paul writes to women, women, you should respect, you should give respect to your husbands. Men, you should sacrifice, you should give to your wives. We approach dating and love today like bargain shopping, right? We like to get, like, like we're going to the flea market to see what we can walk away with, what good deal we might land today about what we will receive. I, I don't know how many times I was encouraged growing up, even in the church, to make a list of what I wanted in a wife, right? Make your list, pray for it, that God will give you your list. I was encouraged that, like many times to do that. So this is what I'm looking for. This is what I want to be true of my spouse. I want them to be smart. I want them to be funny. I want them to be attractive. I want them to be kind. Love Jesus some, right, if I'm a Christian. (laughs) I have to say this set me up and it sets a person up for failure. Because what this does is it puts emphasis on what you will receive from another person. And there is nothing wrong with having standards. There's nothing wrong with enjoying things about another person. But if you approach love with what I want or must receive, you're setting yourself up for danger because you're laying a foundation of criticism and evaluation for your relationship. Does this person pass your test? Does this person give you all the things that you want? And I'm here to tell you that if you relate to people like this when you're dating, it will still be at play in your heart when you get married. It is easy to criticize and evaluate your spouse. Are they giving you what you want? Are they being who you want them to be? And this is when the sin of covetousness that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, 3 creeps in. You've been along after another person's spouse because you're comparing and you're evaluating. And I will go ahead and tell those of you who are married, those of you who will get married, compare your spouse to other spouses. Criticize them, you both will lose. Because there will always be another man or another woman who is smarter than your spouse, better looking, funnier, more passionate, who has a better job, who loves Jesus more than your spouse. Base your marriage on what you will receive rather than the call to love by giving, and it it will eat away at you and your marriage. Looking at what you receive rather than what you can give not only fosters criticalness and comparison, but it can also foster a heart of demanding in your marriage. And danger sets in when you start demanding to receive. When you start demanding that the other give you what you want when you want it. Marriage isn't always easy. Surprise, if you didn't know that. Uh, It's not always easy. There will be arguments and there will be fights. And if you have a heart that looks to receive rather than to give, when you fight with your spouse, and you will, you will wait for them to move towards you to make up for a fight. 
There'll be this great standoff of stubbornness, right? Who's going to move first? If you're looking to receive rather than give, you will demand for your spouse to move towards you first. And that is a recipe for a bad marriage. Because that is not love. Love looks to give, not just receive. This is a profound mystery. Speaking of Christ and the church. Christ came to give, not only receive. Jesus Christ shows us what love is by the cross. Jesus endured the cross. He despised its shame. It was hard. It meant death. He gave up his own life. And Jesus was not hanging on the cross, looking out at humanity, wondering what he was going to gain from us. Jesus didn't sacrifice his own love for us because we were smart and funny and kind and we had a good body and we were talented. Jesus gave his life in order to make us beautiful, in order to make us lovely. He gave and he loved so that we would receive. Love is giving more than it is about receiving. Love is commitment. Secondly, therefore, love is action more than it is just feeling. We will feel, but it is more about action. The Avett brothers sang it well and described most of us when they sang this. So you want to be in love like the movies? But in the movies, they're not in love at all. And with a twinkle in their eyes, they're just saying the lines, so we can't be in love like the movies. Now in the movies, they make it look so perfect. And in the background, they're always playing the right song. And in the ending, there's always a resolution, but real life is more than just two hours long. So we've had our idea of love rearranged by movies, by love songs, by parents who have divorced because they just didn't feel love anymore, or by our own experiences of dating and sex when our emotions ran high. But true love is far from what we see in the movies and what we hear about in love songs. See, contrary to our culture, love is not a current we just get swept away by. It's not a virus we just catch. It's not a ditch we just fall into. Love is not all feelings. Love is commitment. See, listen to the way Paul talks about in Ephesians again. Wives, respect, submit to your husband. This is the duty. This is the, the action of the wife. It doesn't say, wives, if your husband makes you feel a certain way, then respect him. This is your call. This is your action to respect your husband. Husbands, love your wives. This is the action of the husband. It doesn't say, husbands, if your wife looks pretty that day, then you love her. Or if your wife is being really sweet to you, love her. No, this is your call. This is your duty, to love your wife, regardless of what the other is doing. Love has a call. It is action. It's why the Bible tells us to love our enemy. We're not going to feel warm and fuzzy on the inside for our enemies, are we? For those who have hurt and caused us pain, but the Bible says love your enemy because love is an action. Newspaper columnist and minister George Crane tells of a wife who came into his office full of hatred toward her husband. And, and she said, I don't only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he's hurt me. So George Crane suggested this ingenious plan. He said, go home, act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way 
to be kind and considerate, generous as possible, spare no effort to please him, to enjoy him, make him believe you love him. And after you convinced him of your undying love and that you can't live without him, then drop a bomb. Tell him you're getting a divorce. That'll really hurt him. And with revenge in her eyes, she smiled and she said, beautiful, beautiful. He'll be surprised. And with enthusiasm, she acted as if for two months, showing love and kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, sharing. And when she didn't return George Crane's call, uh, two months later, uh, he finally called her again. And he said, are you ready now to go through with the divorce? And she said, divorce? Never. I've discovered I really love him. I love him. See, her actions had changed her feelings. Motion resulted in emotion. Love is the call to action based on commitment. And you might just find that your emotions follow your actions. And even if they don't, even if they don't, there is still a commitment to act. If you're married, what are ways that you can act in your marriage? That you can serve your spouse, listen, encourage, support? Maybe not just in your marriage, neighbors and coworkers and friends and people in our church. Those of you who aren't married, what are ways that you can act to your coworkers and your maybe roommates or your classmates, people in our church community? Love is action. Again, this is a profound mystery. Speaking of Christ and the church. And Jesus was hanging on the cross. I guarantee you he did not feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. Jesus didn't look out at humanity, seeing our goodness and our loveliness, and then lay his life down. It was his duty. He was sent by the Father to die and to give his life as a ransom. Jesus didn't feel giddy on the inside when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying before he was headed to the cross. He was in agony. Jesus loved because he was committed in covenant love with his Father to come and to redeem the world. And Jesus prayed that if there was any other way than the cross, that the Father might allow it to happen. And so he kept praying until he finally rose confident, confident in his commitment to love his Father and to love us, to come and to die and to give his life for us. During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell, who was the Lord Protector of England, sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. And the execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. However, that evening the bell did not sound. The soldier's fiance had climbed into the bell tower, clung to the great clapper of the bell to prevent it from striking. And she was summoned by Cromwell to come and to account for her actions. And she wept and she showed Cromwell her bruised and bleeding hands. And his heart was so touched that he said, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice curfew shall not ring tonight. Men and women, all of us love a good love story. We do. Men, you're not too tough to not love. You all love a good love story, right? Where lovers are willing to sacrifice for the other. Where lovers are willing to give without receiving. Where lovers are moved to action because they're deeply committed. And there is no greater love story, no better place to look and to understand love than in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us, his church. The love of Christ based on commitment to his Father and to us, 
to sacrifice and to give away with a surety and action. There is no greater love than this, than he who laid down his life for us. And every week we pray that it woos us back to, uh, to himself. This love draws us back over and over. And contrary to our current culture, I want to tell you, we are most fulfilled and we are most free when we are most satisfied in his love towards us. So may Christ's love for his church grab hold of us. And would it rearrange our hearts and our lives and lead us to love as he's loved us. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us. Many people here who, who feel unlovable. Many people here who've been hurt. Many people here who are jaded. Many people here who, uh, Lord Jesus, have given up. And Lord, we will fail one another in our marriages. We'll fail one another as a church community. We will hurt and wound. That's why we come back to you, Lord Jesus, whose love never fails, whose love is perfect, the one who is faithful and steadfast. Help us to understand this profound mystery. And it's a mystery because, Lord, we, would, we just can't comprehend it. We would never have written this story, this incredible love story. Uh, Lord Jesus, pray that it would woo us back to yourself yet again this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen.